will not hear today's scripture reading, and then I'll be back for today's teaching. All right, God speaks to us today from Acts 16, uh, 13 through 15, and as well 25 through 33. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from a city of Thyatira and Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message when she and the members of her household were baptized. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had, had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sir, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke to the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. So uh, my wife and I are making this turn right now uh, where we have been married longer than we were alive before we were married. That makes sense? Uh, And as a result... uh, I can honestly say at this point, I'm getting to the point where I've been married most of my, my life. It's kind of fun. Um, but over that time, of course, uh, you learn a lot about each other. And there have been various tools that we've accumulated over the years that have helped us know each other better and love each other better. Uh, so learning my wife's uh, love language, uh, that is primarily a love language of acts of service and not gifts brought so much clarity as to why she loves it when I clean the kitchen, but isn't so thrilled about flowers. Important to note. (laughs) Uh, As an extrovert, okay, me, though I I do sometimes like my alone time, uh, I actually get most of my energy from being around people. My wife, though, who is a heavy introvert, likes being around people, 
but gets most of her energy from being alone. Now, the reason why that's been super helpful, and I wish I had known that a really long time ago, uh, is that I used, I used to take it really personally when she didn't want to be with me, as though there was something wrong with me. Uh, it wasn't that way. It just was something that she needed in order to feel recharged. And for those of you here uh, who are introverts and you have extrovert friends or extrovert spouses, you know exactly what I mean, I'm sure. But here's the beauty of this in getting to know each other in these ways, is that there is power in knowing someone so intimately that you know what they need when they need it. And this is true in everyday rhythms of life, but it's especially true when you are in the most desperate times of need for love and support and care. And Acts 16 presents a glimpse of God's ability and desire to do what you need when you need it. He knows you to the very bottom and intervenes in your life in the exact ways that you need him to. Now, if you've been with us uh, in this Acts series, you know that week over week, we've seen how the gospel message has been spreading throughout, uh, through the early church and how God has been using ordinary people to do these extraordinary things. And we've seen how the gospel is creating this unprecedented diverse community. We've seen the power of the gospel do amazing, amazing things. And we've seen just as God was using ordinary people in ordinary times back then to do extraordinary things, even today, using ordinary people, ordinary times to do extraordinary things. And here in Acts 16, we get to see another glimpse of the far-reaching power of the gospel message. Specifically, what we see is that the gospel is ultimately God intervening in our lives in the exact ways that we need him to intervene. And so what I want to do, I want to take a look at the three stories that we just heard read, three little vignettes that show us how God goes about intervening in very specific kinds of ways. And so what I want to do, I want to look at those stories of those people, and then I want to take a look at your story, and finally I want to look at our calling. So let's look at their stories of intervention, your story of intervention, and our calling of intervention. So first, the stories of intervention. Uh, Again, here we have these three stories, these three people that Paul and Silas end up meeting on their missionary journey in Macedonia. They are three people that God knew, that God saw, and that God approached in the very specific ways that they needed to be approached. First, we have this woman named Lydia. Now, we know a few facts about her. Uh, Verse 14 tells us that she was a dealer of purple cloth, uh, and then verse 15 tells us that she owned a home. Now, the reason why those are important facts is because purple dye was very expensive in those days. Only the elites could have afforded such products. Plus, the fact that she owned her own home meant that she was likely, altogether, a very wealthy, put-together, successful woman. Important to note about her. We also know, though, that she was a religious, spiritually-seeking woman. And the reason we know that is because Paul and Silas found her by the river listening to Scripture being read. She was essentially joining a prayer meeting down by the river. She was known as a God-fearer, which if you've been with us in the series, we've seen this several times. Uh, It was a non-Jewish convert who was seeking the Lord God of Israel. And so put this all together, this means that she was a a religious woman seeking truth in the Jewish scriptures, as well as being this wealthy, successful woman. Now, knowing this about her, God sends Paul and Silas to intervene in her life. 
They come and they engage her, and they engage her in the scriptures and explain to her the things that she is reading. And as a result, verse 14 tells us that the Lord opened her heart and she responded to Paul's message, that she came to faith and that her entire family would be baptized. Okay, so that's the story of Lydia. Then we have a second story of a girl that we only know as a slave girl. She was a young woman, likely no more than mid-teens, who was both spiritually and physically oppressed. Spiritually, she was being oppressed by an evil spirit. Uh, Physically, she was being oppressed by her captors who were using her for profit. So she is this vulnerable, powerless girl who is being taken advantage of and abused. And in many ways, she's the exact opposite of Lydia. But when Paul and Silas come across her, they command the evil spirit out of her in Jesus' name. And immediately, the girl was liberated from the spirit that had been tormenting her. And God's intervention broke the chains of that spiritual oppression. However, what's also interesting about what happens there is it did not just stop there. She's not just liberated spiritually, but as she's Um, liberated spiritually, she's also liberated physically. We know this to be true because her oppressors were furious that they could no longer profit off of her. So this oppression that she had been experiencing, she's now free from. And as a result, a whole crowd of people freaked out about this. And they threw Paul and Silas into jail as a result. Now, a little bit of an interesting side note. This isn't really all about what we're talking about today, but just a little, bit of, a little bit of a freebie for you. It's interesting to me that the people didn't freak out about the girl being liberated spiritually. It's interesting to me that they freaked out because they no longer could profit off of her. The reason why that strikes me is I find it stunning to the extent to which we as humans over and over again across human history have so consistently put profit over human dignity and profit over people that time and time again over history, we have justified horrific things for the sake of economic stability, economic growth. We have allowed the dehumanization of others and we turn a blind eye to injustice in the hopes that the end of a strong economy justifies the means of propping up policies or leaders or whatever to produce that stability. And in the end, however, it's important to note that God will never stand for such things. We see this over and over throughout the Old Testament, that God will not stand for the oppression of people for the sake of economic stability and growth. For he is a God who most identifies with the vulnerable and with the oppressed, not the powerful. Like I said, just a freebie. Feel free to apply that in whatever way you find appropriate. It's yours. God sends Paul and Silas, though, to intervene in her life. And as a result, the girl experiences the liberating power of Jesus. And then finally, you have the jailer. Now, the consequence of Paul and Silas uh, liberating this girl spiritually uh, is that they're thrown into prison. And while in prison, they have a really uh, interesting interaction with the jailer charged at watching them. The jailer was likely a former Roman soldier, as this would have been common in that day. Uh, We also know that he was a proud man, and we see this in verse 27, because he was responsible for the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. He also was um, 
likely used to very uh, harsh treatment of these prisoners. And what I find to be interesting, more than likely, this man was actually involved at some level in their torture. But when he thought that they had escaped, he knew that he'd be executed for allowing them to get away. And so, because he lived in this brutal shame and honor culture where mercy and grace were not virtues, to avoid the shame of public disgrace and public execution, he prepares to kill himself for having let these prisoners go. But here's what I find to be interesting. If you notice, Paul and Silas, they didn't actually escape. And the reason why that's interesting is that the last time we saw something similar to this was back in Acts 12, where Peter is freed from prison by an angel who comes in and takes off Peter's shackles. And as a result, Peter just kind of walks out of prison, real stealth-like. However, here, we don't have a quiet angel sneaking around a prison, but rather we have a violent earthquake that wakes up the guard. And the question, of course, then, is why does God do it this way? Why not sneak Paul and Silas out all stealth-like? Well, it's because God was not intervening here on behalf of Paul and Silas. This was not a prison break. Rather, God is intervening on behalf of the jailer. The jailer was a proud man who desperately feared public shame. So God intervenes with a tangible experience of grace. God sends Paul and Silas to intervene in this man's life by keeping them in the cell so that they could tell this man of Jesus, the one who takes away all of our shame. And you can only imagine, given that he was the one to ensure their imprisonment, that he would have felt quite moved and loved by this act from them, especially given, likely, what he has already done to them. Okay, let me stop there, because that's a lot of backdrop. I just told you all of their stories. We ha- I think we have a clear picture of these three stories of intervention. The story of the successful spiritually seeking woman, an oppressed, spiritually enslaved girl, and this proud, shame-filled man. But we must not see these stories as stories simply of old, inspiring stories that happened at one time, because I also want us to recognize that the intervention that we see God accomplishing here in these passages is the same kind of intervention that he's doing right now in our lives. Let's consider your story of intervention. You know, one of the most powerful dynamics of the story is the extent to which God knew each of these people in the most intimate kind of ways. As a result, he approached them with what they needed when they needed it. Lydia needed someone who would meet her in her unfulfilled strivings for success, to meet her in her spiritual seeking and point her to the truth of God's goodness in Jesus. But that approach was not going to work for the enslaved girl. For what good was a simple Bible study and prayer meeting down by the river when she was trapped in bondage, unable to break free to go down by the river even if she wanted to? So God meets her in her bondage and sets her free from spiritual oppression, which then leads to this physical oppression. And for the jailer, he was a simple man looking to do his job well with dignity. And so he didn't need the same kind of approach that the other two did. He needed someone to just show him something he'd never seen before. It's grace. God tailored the intervention for each of them in order that they might receive what they needed from him in those moments. And right now, 
Many of you, if you're honest, really identify with some of those people in Acts 16. Some of you here, you're successful. You've worked hard for your career or something else in your life, but you know it to be true that the more you achieve and the more you gain, the more you realize it's not fulfilling you. That success and wealth and accolades, that those things will bury you if your foundation is not strong enough to hold them. And for some of you, your foundation has been the pursuit of your own glory, and in the end, it is crushing your soul. And so maybe you're out seeking. Maybe you're trying to find something that's going to fulfill you. And if that's you, right now, I want you to know that Jesus is intervening in your life. And I want you to hear his words from Matthew 16, where he says, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? He's intervening to tell you what he says in Matthew 6, that you ought not store up for yourself treasures on earth, but rather, as he says in Matthew 11, come to me and I'll give you rest. Maybe for some of you, you are spiritually seeking. You are lost and unsure about what to believe about God. You are like Lydia sitting by the river. This worship service right now is your river. You're seeking. You are seeking and desiring more, and I want you to know that Jesus is intervening in your life right now to tell you what he said in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. He says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that I am the only way to the Father. Hear these words from Jesus. He's intervening for you, saying, come to me. Maybe some of you, you in some ways more identify with the enslaved girl. Some of you are experiencing oppression and bondage. You are in desperate need of liberation. And that can take all different kinds of forms. Maybe some of you, you're trapped in the bondage of lust and sexual sin. Maybe some of you, you're trapped in the bondage of addiction or substance abuse. Maybe some of you are trapped in the bondage of anger or hatred or fear and anxiety. I don't know, everyone listening, but maybe you are literally trapped in actual demonic oppression right now. And maybe some of you, you're actually trapped in some kind of actual slavery. I want you to know, Jesus is intervening. And I want you to hear Jesus' words from Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And that he sets people free. John 8 says, the truth shall set you free. Jesus is that truth. Jesus is liberation. And I want you to also know that spiritual liberation will have physical liberation implications. For God calls his people, his church, to be a people that proclaim liberation and invest themselves and be part of liberating people physically by joining with him in crushing the physical effects of spiritual oppression. And we see spiritual oppression all over the place with physical effects. An example, maybe at the civic level, you know, the eras, just as an example of slavery and Jim Crow in our own nation, those were demonic oppressions. It was a spiritual warfare happening in those times. And God calls his people, his church, to stand against that spiritual oppression. And as a result, it came with physical 
implications, physical restoration. We see those same kinds of things now. There are demonic systems in place that we are called to push against as God's church. You're also going to see this on personal levels as well. If you are in bondage, whatever that bondage might be, some kind of spiritual bondage that produces addictions, some kind of demonic bondage, some kind of actual slavery, I want you to know that on a personal level, God gives us his people, his church, to help lead us in the victory that Jesus accomplishes for us. And so, I want you to know, if you find yourself there, that you ought not struggle alone to experience the liberating power that Jesus accomplishes through his people. He is intervening right now. And some of you, finally, are full of shame. Your failures define you in a way that is crushing your soul. And it's leading you to even contemplate whether or not life is worth living, much like the jailer. And some of you are longing for clarity about who you are because you feel lost and you feel uncertain and you feel lonely as a result. And some of you, you would rather die than be a disappointment or to face the consequences of your failures or face those whom you've hurt or disappointed. And I want you to know that if you're feeling that way, Jesus is intervening right now. Because like Adam and Eve in the garden, your shame is leading you to want to hide away. But Jesus is here to tell you that you are likely hiding in the wrong place. It's interesting to me, if you want to hide as a result of your shame, that could be a good thing as long as you find the right place to hide. And Colossians 3 tells us this. This is where we ought to hide if you feel shame. Colossians 3 tells us to set your mind on things that are above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and here it is, your life is hidden in Christ, in God. Hide yourself in the perfection of Jesus. The perfection that covers and cleanses and restores For it's that perfection of Jesus that is your righteousness as you trust in him. And so look to him and what he says about you. And hear him say the words that he says in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled, but believe in me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Jesus is intervening in your life now. And he's calling you to himself that you might experience in him profound, life-changing ways. For all of us here, may we hear his word, these words of Hebrews 12, that we're called to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at right, the right hand of the throne of God. Hear this, that Jesus suffered the cross and conquered the grave that you might experience life and have it abundantly Experience that life abundant by fixing your eyes on him. Experience this liberation. Experience this joy because Jesus is intervening right now. Last thing I want to say about this, finally, is that, again, I want us to remember something. We've been ending with this, it seems like, every single week, but again, I encourage you that, yes, God intervenes in our lives. And as he intervenes in our lives... Christian. He also calls us to be part of intervention. So finally, just quickly, the calling of intervention. I'll be brief on this point, but I don't want to miss it, that God is going to use you to intervene in the lives of others. 
I mean, consider what we're already seeing here. He's using Paul. If you remember, this is also a man named Saul. Of course, if you remember the story, Jesus intervenes in Paul's life. He met Saul in the exact way that Saul needed. And then God sent Ananias, if you remember Ananias, to meet Saul and lead him to a community of believers who would then nurture and welcome Saul in the faith. Now, fast forward, Jesus is using Saul, Paul, as a means by which to intervene in these other people's lives in order that they now might be welcomed into a new community of faith. That community being one where they will be nurtured. Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, now to be nurtured in a new community, a new way of living. The church, and specifically our church, Redeemer East Harlem, must be a place of love and compassion and grace, that we must be a people that are trusting that Jesus knows not only what we need, but also the needs of our neighbors, of our families, of our friends, and that he will use us to intervene in the lives of others. We need to be a people that believe that Jesus is powerful enough to crush spiritual and physical oppression in the lives of other people. We need to be a people that know that God is gracious and good, and as a result, we have a message to those who are full of shame. And many of us here, we've experienced God's intervention in our lives. I know if you were to go person by person, you could name the ways that God has intervened in your life. And I want you to know that we praise Him for that. And from now until eternity, we'll be praising him for it. But also know that as a result of that intervention, he's calling you to be conscious of the world in which he sends you, to be conscious of those that are around you, that you might be part of the intervention that he seeks to do in the lives of other people. And I encourage you just with this. My simple prayer for us as a church is that God continues to grow us as a people marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, that the fruit of the Spirit be bursting from us. And I know I've been speaking of the fruit of the Spirit a lot over the last several weeks, largely because too often Christians, and I, I see this in myself as well, just unwilling to grow in these ways. But I am I'm calling all of us to seek the Lord that he might grow these things in us, that we might be vessels of the gospel message into the places that he sends us, that we might proclaim the faithfulness of our God wherever we go. Let's pray. Father, God, we acknowledge the ways that you have intervened in our lives. I know each one of us can think of the ways that we needed you. And as a result of that need... You met us there. And God, we thank you for Jesus, for the work that he has done to make it possible for us to know you. We praise you for these things. But God, we also acknowledge <clears throat> that you now call us to be a people that go out to take this message that transformed us. You call us to now take it to others that you will use us as a means by which you intervene in the lives of other people as well. So would you give us eyes to see what you see? Give us ears to hear what you hear? Would you break our hearts for what breaks your heart? And may you lead us to those you desire us to share the good news of the gospel with. We trust that your spirit goes with us. Your spirit goes before us. 
So give us confidence as we speak. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.